Good morning, everyone. How good to be here in this room. So every one of us, as we walked in this door, huh? that door, into this room, every one of us, no exceptions, came in in the middle of our story, came in still weaving that story. And your story, my story, our story, is a story within stories within stories. We're still working at it. And uh, I'm Bill Vendley. I'm going to introduce myself a little bit later in this extraordinary panel. But I want to set a context for us, and I want to do this together. I'm going to ask that we all now take just 15 or 20 seconds, each in our own way, to go to the center of our heart where we tell our stories. Do it your way. Let's do it. Let's go there. So let, I welcome you to do it your way. If it's right for you, give thanks for the fact that your story brought you here. Thank you. We could go on like that for the rest of the time here, but we, we best get on otherwise. So first of all, um, I want to just quote a very famous author, Joan Didion, in her White Album, a very extraordinary writer. And Joan simply says, we tell stories in order to live. It's not, a, it's not a pastime. We tell stories in order to live. Actually, we've been doing it a, a long time. And I'm going to uh, set the stage by borrowing shamelessly and extremely abbreviating something that Carl Sagan, an astronomer, did at the end of the 1990s. He took the then widely accepted, or fairly widely accepted, understanding that our cosmos is 15 billion years old. And he said, let me try to tell that history, as we now know it, in a one-year time frame. So I'm going to just touch on a few little points of this. Very, very brief. January 1, Big Bang. September 9, origin of the solar system. September 9. Oh boy. December 31, 10.30 p.m., first storytellers emerge. December 31, 10.30 p.m. December 31, 11.46 p.m., domestication of fire. Jump ahead. December 31, 11.59 and 51 seconds p.m., invention of the alphabet. Jump ahead. December 31, 11.59 and 55 seconds p.m., birth of the Buddha. Jump ahead a second, 11.59, 56 Seconds p.m., this is December 31, we have the birth of Christ. Jump ahead, same, don't jump ahead, same second. Uh, again, it's 11.59, 58, uh, 59 with 56 seconds. Um, the zero and decimal are invented in Indian uh, mathematics. Any coders here? Anybody use code? That's where we got to start. Eh? Now jump ahead a little bit more, just three seconds. 11.59 and 59 seconds of December 31. It's where we are. It's the voyages of, well, conquest, discovery, 
Uh, it's the development of science and technology. It's world wars. It's formation of the United Nations. It's the early emergence of us, a kind of global culture. It's the adoption of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, it's the early emergent attempt to reconnect the spiritual, intellectual, and scientific ways of knowing in a new, shared, even sacred story that would be our story. It would be a story that would be necessarily plural and honor all of us in our differences. But could it be a story of our honoring where we've come from and honoring our differences? That's what our panel wants to be able to discuss with each other and with all of you. I give one more little uh, little uh, framing. It's in the exact same last moment. December 31, it's at the end of the hour and it's in the very last second. And it's the fact that we acknowledge that we are an indigenous land. That in that very same time period, there were indigenous peoples on this land. The Tonkawa, if I mispronounce, forgive, uh, lived in central Texas and the Comanches and the Apaches moved through this area. And here in this city, there are indigenous people from all over the world. And here in this conference, there are indigenous people. And they bring with them treasure as part of our stories. So we acknowledge it as we uh, go forth uh, in this exercise. With that, as a little background, that we're in the middle of our own stories. And we are inevitably forced, in a sense, invited, really, to, to further tell that story, our personal ones, our shared ones, uh, the ones that will, our, 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 our ancestors will, or our forebears will inherit from us. Let me uh, now quickly say that I'm Bill Vendley. Uh, I work as the uh, Vice President for World Religions and Spirituality at the Fetzer Institute. And that institute is deeply interested in this possibility of a new polyphonic, shared story. It would be a sacred story, but would bring science, uh, integrate science to it. And before that, very, very briefly, I spent most of my life uh, running around the world as the CEO of the world's largest multi-religious organization, working in conflict resolution and, and uh, 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 pandemic responses, human rights abuses, environmental concerns, and experienced shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with secular outfits, religious communities of all kinds, actually falling in love with each other as they work together to solve our many challenges. So I'm thrilled to be with you. And we have with us Doug Abrams. Doug, you are the president of Idea Architecture. <laughs> you are the author of the Book of Joy. And for people who enjoy Netflix, uh, it's running in Netflix right now, the movie version, right? And uh, in addition to that, Doug, you've done, uh, you've worked with so many, served and, and, and collaborated with so many extraordinary persons. Uh, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned um, uh, the work you did with Stephen Hawking in his last book, uh, The Global Bestseller, Brief Answers to the Big Questions. So Doug, you're a servant of, of our common project here, so wonderful to have you with us. Uh, Pamela Ayo Yutunde, who is beloved as Ayo to all of us. Um, Ayo is uh, a remarkable, uh, I don't know how to describe Ayo, but she's, uh, <laughs> she's so remarkable. Um, she's, a, she's a pastoral counselor, she's an artist, She's an extraordinarily accomplished author. She's just written recently um, Casting Indra's Net, which is, a, which is a stunning way to retell Buddhism to all of us in terms of our kinship with each other. And she's published many other remarkable books, Buddhist-Christian Dialogue, U.S. Law and Womanist Theology for a Transgender Spiritual Care, and co-edited co -edited Black and Buddhist 
as well as so many other publications say. So, I.O., good to be with you. And uh, Gordon, um, you are, yes, a pioneering relational psychologist, but you are also the long-term president of the Esalen Institute. And in that work has been a kind of uh, gestation of extraordinary work that's aimed at uh, advancing the common good. Uh, Gordon, in particular, you've, in a certain way, positioned gestalt therapy in your sort of deeply relational approach, uh, pioneering it with evolution, with neurobiology, with the openness to spirituality. And so you're really a, an amazing pioneer for all of us, and we're grateful that you're here indeed. So we've got three big questions. We're turning to them right, uh, right now. Um, to Doug, let's start with you. We're going to do this as a conversation. We'll start with you about the question of, um, of why we necessarily tell ourselves stories. What's with that? Doug, help us to open that, if you will. And then we're going to interact. And, and as we go run through the panel, once we've gone through that, We'll open their mics here, and, and people will stand at the mic, and we'll try to integrate as we can this, uh, this conversation. So, Doug, over to you, please. Thank you, Bill. It's so good to be told who you are. I mean, I've <laughs> been seeking that for a long time, and now I've figured it out, so thank you. Um, as Bill said, I've been a student of many of the world's great uh, spiritual masters and scientists, and one of the things I learned from Archbishop Desmond Tutu was always to begin with gratitude. So I want to thank Bill and my fellow panelists, Gordon and Io, and all of you uh, for coming today. Um, it's such a privilege to be in a room of storytellers and of people who are trying to create the stories of the future um, for our protopian future, um, and to the Fetzer Institute for sponsoring this. Um, we need stories because it is the fundamental mechanism with which we understand the world. Our brains have what is called autobiographical memory, which is the story we tell of ourselves. And nothing goes from episodic memory into, into autobiographical memory if it is not told and woven into the story of ourself. So we can under, we can experience any kind of catastrophe and survive it if we have meaning in it. Without meaning, uh, we basically perish in our self-understanding, in our ability to confront the future and the life that we're living. So the question becomes, what is the story that we are telling of ourselves that we find ourselves in the midst of, and what is the collective story. Uh, in working on the Book of Joy with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, the Dalai Lama said, you know, we have maximum 100 years. That's, that is the scope of our story. And so what is that, what are we, and he said, you know, as he said it, you know, the, the point is not to um, make more problems in that 100 years. We have to use that 100 years for the best possible benefit. So the question is, what is the story that can most guide us personally in our story, the self-story? And we'll talk about how we navigate that self-story. And then how do we come together to create a protopian story of the future that orients us? And I think so much of our crisis right now is we don't, we are the first civilization of, in human history to not have an agreed upon story or what's often called a cosmology of who we are, what we're doing here, and where we're going. Thank you very much, Doug. Um, Gordon, wanna, wanna jump in just with Doug's opening there? Well, uh, is this on? Yeah. Can you hear me there? Because I'm kind of hoarse. Thanks. <laughs> um, so who are we? We have an, we inherit, we inhabit and inherit, if we have it and it has us, as in the way of this kind of story, an old pseudo-scientific story 
that I call hyper-individualism. That story is so dead. It's dead in terms of brain research, it's dead in terms of evolutionary research, contemporary archaeoclimatology, all kinds of fields coming together, including individual development, to tell us that, our, that we are not individualistic beings. We're unique, we're creatively unique, but we're, our basic ground is relational. We are embedded in, we inhabit relationship, and relationship inhabits us. And that's, I'll say a little bit more of that later on, but Ayo, have a commentary or your own input? Can you hear me? No. Yes. Okay, so I'll just say, uh, in terms of gratitude, I also want to thank South by Southwest uh, for, and people who thought about how many years ago said we ought to do this and look at us here today, uh, right? I mean, it's amazing. What I've never been here before. I've never been to this conference. And the thing that I'm picking up on is that the people who are here are people who are not uh, satisfied with a certain mindset of we're going to keep doing things the way we've always done them. This is not that crowd, right? And so that's what gives me hope, that there are many people, many of our, I call, I call us kinfolk, many of us kinfolk in this big family who are interested in and are committed to doing things differently for our collective survival. And just one little thing that you just inspired me to do, Gordon, is that when we think about telling our stories, that we, like when I put the mic up to your lips so that people could hear you properly, that that's pretty much what we're trying to do is make it possible for people to tell their stories, right? To assist them, give, give them the mic, right? So Great. that's what we're doing. Great. Doug, Doug, let's, let's go back to the way you, you opened us and um, help us to understand why we have so many problems. <laughs> why, why, why our stories um, have, across time, um, uh, pitted us against each other. Uh, and, and so you, you helped us with why it's so radically essential that we story, but let's... Uh, we're going to explore the, the possibility we have today, but help us to understand what we've confronted across time. It, it's not delinked to Gordon's comment about being trapped uh, in one way or the other, but help us on that. Um, well, thank you. I think you're... Uh, I won't be able to s explain all the problems, but specifically the problem of why our... Uh, it's so hard to come to a shared story. And I think part of it is this pseudoscientific story that we've had around individualism. But I think there is a fundamental brain mechanism that we are grappling with, which is that we are these incredibly pro-social beings. Um, all the research suggests that we are... Uh, slightly less than a eusocial species where just we live in our relationships at the most profound level but we also have this deep tribal reflex where we divide the world into us and them and so we are constantly incredibly empathic and I, um, I think in this project that Gordon and I were working on in the new human story where we convened all these scientists to talk about what is the new human story. One of the things that uh, they were talking about is that our empathic resonance circuits of the brain don't actually activate if we see somebody as other. It only ha triggers our empathy when we see them as part of us. And so that division between us and them is one of the fundamental challenges to coming up with collective stories that are appropriate and in service to the time. Yeah, yeah. And if I could, this may be a little bit nerdy, but I'll speed through it. Um, there's a reason for that, and a story that we want to create and inhabit 
and have inhabit us to lead us to a different future, a near future, so that it's not, as Edward R. Murrow said when the first bomb went off, if you remember that ancient name, he said, the question for humanity is, is it 11.59 and 59 seconds, or is it 0001? So we can make a new beginning. That question hangs over us today more intensely than ever. But why do we have this, this default to us them? If our superpower as a species, and it really is a superpower, is this relational capacity, this capacity to read others, to organize our communities and our networks, to, uh, to act creatively in unique new ways uh, at an un unknown degree in any other species. If that's our superpower, this superrelationality, what is our kryptonite? Our kryptonite is the complexity that demands of our brains. It's that social complexity, this is the nerdy part, that has driven the, the explosive growth of the brain in the last million years. It's the most complex problem we face, is social complexity. Apparently our modal number of a proto-human, early human community is 150. At about 150, the community fissions and divides. Well, that's because the numerical combinations of uh, the number 150 into all the possible subgroups and multiple subgroups and interactive groups is more than the number of particles in the known universe. So, and we are born prematurely without instincts for handling this. If we had instincts for handling all these things, instinctive fixed patterns, we wouldn't be the creative social species we are. So what triggers the difference? The kryptonite is, I can get overwhelmed with complexity. And what makes me particularly vulnerable to that, and this is the, the bell that I want to chime again and again, it's what we would call in the broadest sense political. If I am in an insecure position in my life, then I will revert very easily to us and them. Why? Because it simplifies my mental and story field. The only thing I need to know about you is, are you on my side? The, not the rest of who you are, maybe we have profound differences, but you're on my side, we're in a battle here. And we're in a battle for survival. So if you want to put condition our magical, sacred, unique, complex relational species into not having access to that superpower, just take away all the props and supports that sustain complex life. That is, among other things, a political question. I yeah, very good. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that actually works in the most concrete of way imaginable. I, I've been one who's lived in uh, a good number of violent conflicts as part of the attempt to try to help those conflicts resolve. And so what we find is exactly what you're describing. The narratives begin to tear apart. People who were neighbors, people who were married and had mixed families and were celebrating different feasts together and so forth, in a time of violence become pulled apart. And the narratives harden, and the narratives then become the selective memory. You, re you, re you remember only the things that support that narrative, and you see the other only in terms of that narrative. And then the really extraordinary thing is, is that you've got to locate, and communities do this, they find people on both sides of the conflict that don't match those narratives that in fact are good people. And that's a subversive thing when the narratives are pulling in the wrong direction. And gradually, these estranged communities have to find a way to enlarge those contracted stories, those selective ones, into ones that can embrace uh, their neighbors. And it's the most extraordinary thing under the hardest circumstances, but we have that capacity. Uh, to do that. I just wanted to jump in because I think um, Rwanda is an amazing example of that, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and are you Hutu and Tutsi or are you Rwandan? Yeah. I mean, and 
each national identity is a story. American is a story. Democrat is a story. Republican is a story that we tell ourselves. And so the question is not how do we have one story, but how do we have nesting stories, and as Gordon's saying, of increasing sophistication and complexity that, that allow us to have all of those identities live together in a way that where the story doesn't just inhabit us unconsciously, mm. but we actually are consciously able to be the masters of our own storytelling and to create the identity and the future that we want to live into. The master, but also open to reflection from others and collaboration with others, right? Ultimately, we, we have the final, hopefully we have the final say on who we are, how we're going to live, what dreams we'll have and live into, but also open to feedback from others. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and I think our stories, because we're relational, our stories live in conversation with the stories of others around us and are enriched by those stories. And I think one of the things that, Gordon, you were saying so powerfully is when we're in fear, our stories get simplified. And when we are um, in desperation, when we feel like we're not safe, um, or when a society doesn't support us in the ways that increase our sense of uh, safety and complexity, then we revert to those very simple narratives of who can I trust, who can I not trust, who's with me, and, you know, and you know, some of the neuroscientists I've worked with have talked about how basically one of our, our most fundamental questions is this question of friend or foe. And, you know, I worked with John Barch, who was uh, one of the leading scientists of the unconscious brain, and he said, our most basic unconscious bias, it goes back to when we were paramecia, of whether I approach or avoid. You know, so even back to that, that when we were one-cell organisms, we were already making that decision about safety and trust and approach or avoid. So uh, thank you, Doug. Uh, uh, very helpful. And uh, Io, let's let's a little bit turn to you at this point, and uh, because around your comment is the importance of the way we tell our stories. Uh, how does that matter? Give a, you've been retelling stories, so that's something that you've uh, committed yourself too, in a very honest way, but help us to understand the significance of the way we might tell our stories. Personal, uh, cultural, religious, what are the ways? How does, that, how does that make a crucial difference for us? I'm pausing because I'm thinking about your question right now in relationship to the very first question you asked about Stories. And we have to, stories, storytelling, story dwelling is inescapable. Yeah. It's inescapable, right? So, and I have noticed in my own life, in my own storytelling, that depending on who I'm telling a story to, I might tell it differently, right? Based on what I think they're interested in or what I feel comfortable sharing. And as a pastoral counselor, I hear a variety of stories. Sometimes people will tell me the story, the same story in essence, but tell it differently depending on how comfortable they feel with me and how comfortable they feel with themselves. The vulnerability, now that I've told you this story, now what? What are the implications for that? Who are we with one another now that I've shared this precious story in this way with you? And what are you going to do with it? You're going to say something, Gordon? Yeah, if I might comment. This goes back to the way that developmental psychology integrates with all those other scientific disciplines in if we're creating a new story. And that is, in the old individualistic model, the emphasis was on expression. Am I express expressing myself? Now, that means expressing myself in terms of the story I know and the parts of myself I know, because I have to already know it in order to express it. In a relational, deeper model that we know we are actually, is actually our nature, the quest, the, we arrive at the insight that the ear pulls the voice. 
and as a counselor you know this well, when, you, when your listening is attuned and empathic enough for the client to feel that, they begin to remember things differently and to tell them differently. So just, just that, the ear pulls the voice, not the other way around. Can I come back to you, Ayo, for a second? Were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to say that um, I think it would be useful to, to ground this storytelling in our personal experience. And as a pastoral counselor, you have seen the role in which stories kind of um, pull us forward, help us survive um, the great challenges that we face in our lives. And I just... Um, and in, the opposite. And the opposite. And, and, you know, and so I think it might be interesting to take us from the kind of collective story that we've been talking to to the very personal stories and how... What difference does it make at the individual level what story we tell? It makes a lot of differences. <laughs> um, I don't think that qu that question can be answered in a simple in a simple way. I'll just say, from my own experience, and I'll I'll say as uh, mm, if I think about this intersection in a intersectional way as maybe first female, you know, born into my family as a girl, and then into a black family, uh, and into a, a working class family, into a Christian family. There were all these stories coming from all those perspectives about who I was supposed to be, who I am, to my parents anyway, and who I was supposed to be and grow into. And just like everybody else, I'm saddled with stories from other people that before I even have the ability to form my own way of understanding myself. So the trap is that we tend to believe stories that are given to us, that we inherit, that are imposed upon us, that are not true. And our task as we grow up, as we develop and become human uh, uh, adults is to put aside that which isn't true for us and tell the story that is our truth, regardless of whether anyone wants to hear it, whether they like it, whether they will like us, and to not grow into the kind of person, or at least if, if you're like me, to work against being a pleasing person, <laughs> right? Our story is not to be told to be pleasing to everyone, but to be the truth. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, oh, terrific. Terrific. So, I, oh, you, let, let's, uh, profound on the personal level, but you've operated on collective story, particularly in the question of Buddhism, for example. So I've experienced, every tradition has extremists. So I've heard the Buddhist story in uh, in some section in some places in Myanmar, some sections in Sri Lanka, which are extremist stories. Uh, unfortunately, this happens in every tradition. You've chosen to tell the Buddhist story, and you use the word kinship as your subtitle. So reflect on the difference of how one could tell not only a personal story but a collective story and the difference it makes when you tell that story one way or the other. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to try to keep my response as short as I can, I'll just say that heartbreak has something to do with that. Observing the ways that we hurt each other over and over again, as if we have no idea that there are other ways to be with one another, just that heartbreak. And also, for my, just for my own story, my mother was adopted. And when I learned that she was adopted, and I loved my grandmother, that blew my mind. The thought that somebody could voluntarily raise a child that they didn't give birth to blew my mind, and I said, I want to be that kind of person when I grow up. Well, I'd, my partner and I, who is here, uh, we adopted our daughter, 
Yes, I, lo I love her. Fiercely love her. And as my heart was broken over and over again, especially recently, I began to think, what, do we, what story do we need to live into that's going to help us move the needle towards a better future? And that is to go beyond just you know, civility, politeness, kindness, friendship, but to begin imagining actually adopting one another informally. That's why I say kinfolk. Kinfolk, can you imagine that I'm adopting you and that we are adopting each other and adopting you and that you are adopting each other and adopting us and that all these thousands of people out here, you have the potential to, to have a completely different posture towards them, one of kinship. Mm -hmm. And some people will say, no, I can't imagine that because family is so complicated. <laughs> yes, we are we'll never get, get rid of the complication. But given what we've seen and the direction we're going in now, I think that to be towards uh, more of a family for each other is going to get us closer to our collective survival than just mere friendship. Bravo. Yeah, you're uh, here. here. Gordon. So what, what Iowa is saying, in addition to so many beautiful things, what we're all saying is our new story, the story we create, the one you're working on with your team at Fetzer, which can encompass the world, starts with a re-identification of me and everybody, me and all of you, us and all of you, all the different kinds of us's. When you talk about heartbreak, I think about in all the wars of the world, the parents who have lost children, sons or daughters, or others, other children that they loved, others' children, um, come together afterwards around their shared heartbreak. So let's come together before the catastrophe and reimagine ourselves and tell that to each other and ourselves and inhabit that story. So, so Gordon, continue a little bit now, opening open a little further uh, this question of a shared story and uh, uh, sketch uh, some, of the, some of the concerns that, uh, that feature as integral to, to the, it's, it's a common labor. This is not some committee that's gonna do this for us. We're, we're the ones doing this. But, but, but open that a little bit further for us, Gordon, and, and, uh, and then we're going to open it to, to the house here to reflect with us. Well, as human beings, we have a complex story, as we keep saying already, and it binds us to a certain group. So, uh, for instance, murder, we talk about heartbreak and joy, good things too. Murder is a crime in every known human society. But murder is killing a member of your tribe. If it's a war, that's not murder, that story tells us. We have, that's what we have to undercut and reimagine. That part of the story has to change. We all belong to all. And if we don't look at ourselves that way, we'll stay right where we are and it'll get worse. So, so terrific. So the, here's what we're going we're gonna to try to do with all of us collaborating together is invite people who uh, would like to enter the conversation with a question. So here's the thing, we've all got stories, so there's, no, there's not a room to tell these yet. After, we, after this concludes, we're gonna stay here, so if there's personal stories to be shared, th those are welcome and important, but let's keep it as a conversation. So that means questions, and this conversation is not stopping, it's just simply now opening to include others who would like to give voice for all of us uh, into the, into the uh, conversation through means of questioning. So let's uh, simply know that that uh, invitation is there, there's a mic right there, so that would be the place to line up. And I'm gonna uh, sort of invite that this conversation keep going here and that we'll just turn back and forth uh, to anybody who queues up 
uh, with a question. I'm going to be uh, a friendly reminder that questions are the key when you lined up at the mic so that we can, we can carry on the conversation. So from now on, mic is to be cued, if you would so wish. And as people come up, I want to encourage you, when, if you journal or anything like that, that you, when you're thinking about how you're going to live into your future story, what are the self-limits that you've identified? And investigate those and share it with somebody you trust and learn how to work through those. You know what I think we'll do, because there are people lining up, I think we will, if everybody will cooperate and be rather succinct in your asking a question, we'll allow maybe two or three questions to emerge and then allow the panel to try to integrate that in an organic way, if we can. That might allow us to, to welcome more questions. So we, we, let's take this moment now and invite you at the front of the queue to, to help us with the question that's, that's in your heart. Yeah, my question is around, there's a lot of us who are looking to improve in our career journeys, who are looking to grow, who are getting into people leader roles, um, and to build on the conversation that we were talking about, um, we have to navigate um, with people's biases and politics. So how do we navigate that better, knowing that these things exist, that when people are interviewing or anything of that sort, and we've heard it, this genre has been going out with South by Southwest, but I, I don't want to talk about it from the interviewer. I want to talk about it from an interviewee perspective. What can we open ourselves up to to find that um, common ground? Great. Let's take the, wonderful, let's take the next uh, question and just to try to see if we can hold a couple in the air at the same time. So it's kind of similar, but um, a bit more selfish. How do you shut up the, the voice, like between uh, the moment I woke up today and now, I felt like strangling maybe three or four people, and I'm a good person. I promise you I'm a good person. I self-reflect. I've been in therapy since I'm 13. You know, but sometimes it's so hard to inhabit the other person's story. They're in a hurry, I'm in a hurry, but they're not minding their space. How do you silence that so that instead of three people, maybe I only want to strangle one of them? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, we'll take one more question there, they, they, and then we'll, we'll go back to a conversation here. Yeah, Hi. terrific. Yeah, I guess it's also kind of a similar question in the sense that, like, I forget who it was that talked about sort of the, comp the complexity of, like, different experiences. And I find myself, like, especially in today when there's so many different identities, so many different, like, every, I don't know, people are really different. And so sometimes when I come across that, I get... Um, my instinct is maybe fear or to like, like you said, us and them. When things are black and white, they're simpler. And once they get gray, like I get that sort of, oh, this is too much for me. I can't handle it. So do you have any sort of tips for how we navigate a world that is increasingly obviously more complex because of how connected we now are to so many different stories? Terrific. Actually, there is a thread in all three of those, those uh, very, very uh, concrete questions. And I think every one of us are living some variance of those questions. So there's a very helpful. So let's open it up. Let's open it up. It could be anybody. Gordon, you've got, you're yeah. ready to go. Um, about the particularly way the second question phrased it, how do, what do I do with all that negativity I feel sometimes? Uh, first of all, self-compassion. Buddhist practice, but it's in every great tradition. That's so key. That's part of our humanness. We're in, just look at yourself as inadequately supported to love that person at this moment, but you can love them later. Uh, the main thing is, don't let that moment of human frailty, of judgment, of negativity, of emotion, emotional feeling, reinterpret it as a lack of support for yourself. Supply some of that support with compassion, and don't let it get in the way of doing your good work. Doug. Um, having done my fair share of therapy as well, um, I would also just add that 
we live in a pathological story, psychological story uh, in modern society as well, which actually um, suggests that we're broken and need fixing. And so that, you know, and that the, all those pieces that are there, the three or four people, you know, that are there, um, that somehow they shouldn't all be there. Um, and that some of them are good people, some of them are bad people. Um, and I think that where I'm leaning in my own self story, um, beyond coming increasingly to know, <laughs> to a sense of transcendence beyond myself and my story. Archbishop Tutu says, you will be surprised by the joy when you go beyond your own self-regard, you know, when you go beyond yourself and see yourself as something more than just yourself, because I think some of the lies of the psychological story are that we're broken and also that it's all about us, rather than recognizing the intergenerational, the cultural, um, the political, all the pieces that conspire to create our reality. Um, I also wanted to come to the question about leadership and, um, and say that I think that um, having done the Book of Hope with Jane Goodall, one of the things that was really stu stuck out for me was that what leaders are creating is hope. You know, what every great leader does is they create hope, they create a vision of what's possible. And I think the challenges right now is that there are so many of these uh, hyphenated identities or um, a sense of you know, us and them become hardened. And those identities are important, but if we can hold them more lightly, more graciously, realizing that 99.999% of our experience is you know, same human being, um, and that while we respect each other's differences, we don't get stopped by those differences in seeing that shared humanity. And I echo yep. these sentiments. And also I wanna say as a Buddhist practitioner, especially in the Soto Zen tradition, we are taught to use the, all the ingredients of your life, that everything in your life can be used for good. So I'm about to use something that's in this room. You see this L'Oreal, right? Do you all remember the advertisement from, uh, by Viola Davis? Isn't that L'Oreal where she says you're worth it? I have used that commercial in pastoral counseling. And I recommend that everybody watch that commercial. She's so convincing, of course she is. She's a brilliant actress. But eventually you forget that she's an actress and you, and you live into what she's saying. And the reason why I mention this is because sometimes as it relates to self-compassion, one of the first things I hear is, but I'm not worthy of that. You're worthy of it. And if you still think I'm not, you don't know me. How can you know me and say that? Faith, this is, this is where you have to let go a little bit of your self-concept and trust me, your sister, <laughs> okay? Trust your big sister, younger sister, whatever. You are worthy of self-compassion. And just to add that the, how um, you said it so beautifully, that that assumption that somehow, um, that hyper-individualism that, that Gordon was saying, which fragments and isolates us from one another and makes us feel like our pain and our suffering and our heartbreak and our self-doubts are unique to us, and rather than recognizing that they are just the nature of being human. And I think this ties in, if I may, Bill. Uh, each one of us in this room, not only, first of all, each of us, each of you, each of us, deserves to be here, or we wouldn't be here. Each of us is a survivor, or we wouldn't be here. Now that gives us a choice of being a survivor as a creative survivor or a survivor as a victim. That makes a difference to people around you. There's a lot of research on this in children of divorce. And no matter the circumstances, and sometimes the circumstances are terrible, if you have a single parent who is presenting to the, and caring for the children, 
and has a victim story of himself or herself, that is a bad predictor. That's a predictor of not the best outcomes. But the same history, the same facts, in a different story, where the parent or the guardian or the foster parent or whoever it is, carries him and herself, their self, as a, uh, someone who met a challenge and overcame it, that's a good predictor for the child. We are all each other's children, as you keep emphasizing each other's siblings, each other's kin. So the way we inhabit the story that we ourselves are a survivor of is uh, affecting everybody around us. So it starts there. So, what, let's go to uh, the people patiently queued, and let's follow the same procedure. We'll try to hold a number of questions, and uh, we're, we're not exactly, how, mu how much time do we have? We have 10 minutes total. We'll get the questions out. We'll need two or three minutes to try to bring some kind of, of conclusion to this. But go forward, please. And so let's do them briefly if we can, just to, unfortunately, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to participate those, in this For story. those who are leaving, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Hope the rest of the conference is a beautiful thing for you. And uh, we have a book signing. Check us out at 1 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this story. Um, does Doug, does finding meaning uh, that you need to overcome something always have to be spiritual? I'm sorry, could you say the first part? In terms of finding meaning in, finding meaning. in, in overcoming something, something you said at the beginning, yeah. is it always spiritual or is there, like to find meaning, like does it have to be a spiritual experience? Good question, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for my opportunity and thank you for having the microphone at this height. It's brilliant. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I heard uh, was that empathy is only triggered when someone is seen as one of them and empathy is not triggered if it's perceived as an outsider. So hopefully I heard that correctly. Um, as a psychologist and filmmaker and storyteller, I would love to know if you have any tips on how to create empathy for people when they're seeing someone else as an outsider, how to get that um, common Great ground. Question. Terrific, terrific question, yeah. Hi, so um, I'm in a multi-religious uh, household. My husband and I from different religions and we're raising our kid um, in an open spirituality rather than religious. And my question is, um, as the panel said that, um, our stories are almost like halfway created by how we're born, how we're raised, who our parents are. And um, my question is for the new generation, for our children, how do we help create their story? Um, at least to start with their story, the opening, and for them to carry on the story to a conclusion. Terrific. Wow. Please, yeah, go ahead, because there won't be time, yeah. Okay, so the question first, thank you all. Um, I appreciate everyone's vocalization of what you hope we leave with, and mainly, what do you want us to collectively embody when it comes to this protopian future beyond love and gratitude, great. if there's more? Great, great. So here's how, here's how I suggest we proceed. We've actually got six minutes so, and we're going to try to do two things at the same time, if we, if we'll, we'll try our best. So I'm going to ask each one of you to take about a minute to reflect in any way you can to be helpful on those questions, and just move through here, and then I'm going to come back a final minute from each one of you to... Is this like speed dating? Yeah, this is a speed date. <laughs> a speed date here. There's no, I don't see a better way. So let's just go the best and humble, very humbly to do the best we can. Uh, and then we're going to do another round about trying to, uh, where does this take us as we walk out of this room, still in the middle of our stories? Doug. Thank you, Bill. It's not easy to not easy. shepherd these cats and yeah. facilitate this conversation. Yeah. You've done a great job. Um, so just very quickly, I think that our stories, it really comes down to what do we mean by spiritual. Um, and I think, I really think about it more as our deepest humanity. And whether you see it as spiritual or sacred, that's really 
kind of a paradigm of whether you, you live in or not. But what we've often used spiritual to mean or the soul to mean or sacred to mean is the deepest part of our shared humanity and the part that transcends our individuality. And so I think the challenge is when we become reductionist materialists and we lose that part that binds us together. Um, I think the question was also about how do we, um, how do we get the empathic resonance going without groups or others. And I think this is, those of you who are in this room as filmmakers and storytellers, this is the oldest trick of storytelling, right? Which is we put our heroes in terrible trouble that allows us to see them as fellow human beings. And we see their particularity and we're like, oh, that's just like me. Or, oh, I suffer in that way. And we see that bond that gets them out of the, this is the other. Um, and then finally, the question was for our children. But I think I've, I'm done with my minute, so I'll pass that on to. <laughs> I'll, I'll try 30 seconds. No, no, you go. You now. go, go, go. Right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Doug. Great. Try to be generous, um, which has to do with what, what more is there than love and compassion? There's generosity, there's patience. I was thinking about the question of how do we become less of the other for another? Let's put it that way. And in my experience, it has been spending time with others. Uh, I'm thinking about a class that I taught called, called The Net. Uh, and there was a black woman who entered into the classroom with a, a, a class of predominantly white people. She was just so angry. She came in so angry. The first thing she said was, I don't know if I can be in class with all these white people. And I said, well, you're right, you don't know. Why don't you stay in it long enough to see if you can? <laughs> and she said, okay, well, you'll be there. I'm like, of course I'll be there. I'm teaching the class. So there'll be two black people and a group of white people. And, and, and what she learned was that by telling her truth about her doubts, her own self, she didn't say these white people are bad people. She doubted her own ability yeah. to be there. Yeah. Yeah. So she claimed that uh, for herself. I helped coach her to be in the class appropriately. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I also advised the white students in the class to not minimize themselves out of white guilt mm -hmm. because this black woman came in with all of this anger. Yeah. We were able to stay together for seven months um, and we became less of that black person, those white people to each other, yeah. and they became very, uh, very friendly towards one another yeah. by the end of it. So it usually just takes time before we go from being objects to subjects yeah. for one another. God bless. Hmm. Terrific. Gordon. Just very briefly, you coached her. You were asking earlier, we each were, what is there in addition to love and compassion and new vision and so forth? And there is something in this coaching. There is something else in addition that we need and we can reach for, and that is support. When you find yourself or you find someone else feeling not at home with the group they're in because they're, they're reaching for a new story that doesn't fit the old story of their group of origin, then encourage them and do this for yourself. If you're in this position yourself, look for your support. Have a map of your supports. Who agrees with you? Who are the significant people? They don't have to be people you know personally. They can be writers. I mean, Gandhi talked about Thoreau. Martin Luther King talk, talked about Gandhi and Thoreau. Uh, when you don't have enough support around you, evoke your other mental supports, other relational supports. Use it. Support is the key to have more freedom when other supports are missing. Terrific. So we, we've just got a minute. We've, we've got a minute. Terrific. So here's, here's, a, here's a concluding, not a concluding, but here's a, a parting thought. We've got many stories. We've historically had many stories. We've had many religions. We've had many cultures and so forth. They're not going away. Our personal stories aren't going away. But can they be? Can they arrive? at a level of ultimacy in our own hearts that grounds for us solidarity in our shared flourishing. Not simply interpersonal, and I know that you're way beyond that, but the flourishing of the full community of being, 
with the earth that we live in together, with the societies that we're co-building and that need to serve us with each other, with ourselves, for those who find the word meaningful, with this mysterious thing we call the sacred, each, each honored and respected on their own ways, say. So it seems that's the, the, the challenge that uh, we walked in with, we've lifted up, and we'll walk out with. Let's do it together. Thank you. Thank you.